Please check the description for a link to paper copies of the books featured and upcoming as well as links to other products that will help support this podcast. Thanks for being awesome. Chapter 3 Monetary Metals As human technical capacity for the production of goods became more sophisticated and our utilization of metals and commodities grew, many metals started getting produced at large enough quantities and were in large enough demand to make them highly saleable and suited for being used as monetary media. These metals' density and relatively high value made moving them around easy, easier than salt or cattle, making them highly saleable across space. The production of metals was initially not easy, making it hard to increase their supply quickly and giving them good saleability across time. Due to their durability and physical properties, as well as their relative abundance in earth, some metals were more valuable than others. Iron and copper, because of their relatively high abundance and their susceptibility to corrosion, could be produced in increasing quantities. Existing stockpiles would be dwarfed by new production, destroying the value in them. These metals developed a relatively low market value and would be used for smaller transactions. Rarer metals, such as silver and gold, on the other hand, were more durable and less likely to corrode or ruin, making them more saleable across time and useful as a store of value into the future. Gold's virtual indestructibility in particular allowed humans to store value across generations, thus allowing us to develop a longer time horizon orientation. Initially, metals were bought and sold in terms of their weight, but over time, as metallurgy advanced, it became possible to mint them into uniform coins and brand them with their weight, making them far more saleable by saving people from having to weigh and assess the metals every time. The three metals most widely used for this role were gold, silver, and copper, and their use as coins was the prime form of money for around 2,500 years, from the time of the Greek king Croesus, who was the first recorded to have minted gold coins, to the early 20th century. Gold coins were the goods most saleable across time because they could hold their value over time and resist decay and ruin. They were also the goods most saleable across space because they carried a lot of value in small weights, allowing for easy transportation. Silver coins, on the other hand, had the advantage of being the most saleable good across scales because their lower value per weight unit compared to gold allowed for them to conveniently serve as a medium of exchange for small transactions, while bronze coins would be useful for the least valuable transactions. By standardizing values into easily identifiable units, coins allowed for the creation of large markets, increasing the scope of specialization and trade worldwide. While the best monetary system technologically possible at the time, it still had two major drawbacks. The first was that the existence of two or three metals as the monetary standard created economic problems from the fluctuation of their values over time due to the ebbs of supply and demand and created problems for owners of these coins, particularly silver, 
which experienced declines in value due to increases in production and drops in demand. The second, more serious flaw, was that governments and counterfeiters could, and frequently did, reduce the precious metal content in these coins, causing their value to decline by transferring a fraction of their purchasing power to the counterfeiters or the government. The reduction in the metal content of the coins compromised the purity and soundness of the money. By the 19th century, however, with the development of modern banking and the improvement in methods of communication, individuals could transact with paper money and checks backed by gold in the treasuries of their banks and central banks. This made gold-backed transactions possible at any scale, thus obviating the need for silver's monetary role and gathering all essential monetary saleability properties in the gold standard. The gold standard allowed for unprecedented global capital accumulation and trade by uniting the majority of the planet's economy on one sound market-based choice of money. Its tragic flaw, however, was that by centralizing the gold in the vaults of banks, and later central banks, it made it possible for banks and governments to increase the supply of money beyond the quantity of gold they held, devaluing the money and transferring part of its value from the money's legitimate holders to the governments and banks. Why Gold? To understand how commodity money emerges, we return in more detail to the easy money trap we first introduced in Chapter 1, and begin by differentiating between a good's market demand, demand for consuming or holding the good for its own sake, and its monetary demand, demand for a good as a medium of exchange and store of value. Any time a person chooses a good as a store of value, she is effectively increasing the demand for it beyond the regular market demand, which will cause its price to rise. For example, market demand for copper in its various industrial uses is around 20 million tons per year at a price of around $5,000 per ton, and a total market valued around $100 billion. Imagine a billionaire deciding he would like to store $10 billion of his wealth in copper. As his bankers run around trying to buy 10% of annual global copper production, they would inevitably cause the price of copper to increase. Initially, this sounds like a vindication of the billionaire's monetary strategy. The asset he decided to buy has already appreciated before he has even completed his purchase. Surely, he reasons, this appreciation will cause more people to buy more copper as a store of value, bringing the price up even more. But even if more people join him in monetizing copper, our hypothetical copper-obsessed billionaire is in trouble. The rising price makes copper a lucrative business for workers and capital across the world. The quantity of copper under the earth is beyond our ability to even measure, let alone extract through mining. So practically speaking, the only binding restraint on how much copper can be produced is how much labor and capital is dedicated to the job. More copper can always be made with a higher price, and the price and quantity will continue to rise 
until they satisfy the monetary investor's demand. Let's assume that happens at 10 million extra tons and $10,000 per ton. At some point, monetary demand must subside, and some holders of copper will want to offload some of their stockpiles to purchase other goods, because after all, that was the point of buying copper. After the monetary demand subsides, all else being equal, the copper market would go back to its original supply and demand conditions, with 20 million annual tons selling for $5,000 each. But as the holders begin to sell their accumulated stocks of copper, the price will drop significantly below that. The billionaire will have lost money in this process. As he was driving the price up, he bought most of his stock for more than $5,000 a ton, but now his entire stock is valued below $5,000 a ton. The others who joined him later bought at even higher prices and will have lost even more money than the billionaire himself. This model is applicable for all consumer commodities such as copper, zinc, nickel, brass, or oil, which are primarily consumed and destroyed, not stockpiled. Global stockpiles of these commodities at any moment in time are around the same order of magnitude as new annual production. New supply is constantly being generated to be consumed. Should savers decide to store their wealth in one of these commodities, their wealth will only buy a fraction of global supply before bidding the price up enough to absorb all their investment, because they are competing with the consumers of this commodity who use it productively in industry. As the revenue to the producers of the good increases, they can then invest in increasing their production, bringing the price crashing down again, robbing the savers of their wealth. The net effect of this entire episode is the transfer of the wealth of the misguided savers to the producers of the commodity they purchased. This is the anatomy of a market bubble. Increased demand causes a sharp rise in prices, which drives further demand, raising prices further, incentivizing increased production and increased supply, which inevitably brings prices down, punishing everyone who bought at a price higher than the usual market price. Investors in the bubble are fleeced, while producers of the asset benefit. For copper, and almost every other commodity in the world, this dynamic has held true for most of recorded history, consistently punishing those who choose these commodities as money by devaluing their wealth and impoverishing them in the long run and returning the commodity to its natural role as a market good and not a medium of exchange. For anything to function as a good store of value, it has to beat this trap. It has to appreciate when people demand it as a store of value, but its producers have to be constrained from inflating the supply significantly enough to bring the price down. Such an asset will reward those who choose it as their store of value increasing their wealth in the long run as it becomes the prime store of value, because those who chose other commodities will either reverse course by copying the choice of their more successful peers or will simply lose their wealth. The clear winner in this race throughout human history has been gold, which maintains its monetary role due to two unique physical characteristics that differentiate it from other commodities.
first. Gold is so chemically stable that it is virtually impossible to destroy. And second, gold is impossible to synthesize from other materials, alchemists' claims notwithstanding, and can only be extracted from its unrefined ore, which is extremely rare in our planet. The chemical stability of gold implies that virtually all of the gold ever mined by humans is still more or less owned by people around the world. Humanity has been accumulating an ever-growing hoard of gold in jewelry, coins, and bars, which is never consumed and never rusts or disintegrates. The impossibility of synthesizing gold from other chemicals means that the only way to increase the supply of gold is by mining gold from the earth, an expensive, toxic, and uncertain process in which humans have been engaged for thousands of years with ever-diminishing returns. This all means that the existing stockpile of gold held by people around the world is the product of thousands of years of gold production and is orders of magnitude larger than new annual production. Over the past seven decades, with relatively reliable statistics, this growth rate has always been around 1.5% never exceeding 2%. To understand the difference between gold and any consumable commodity, imagine the effect of a large increase in demand for it as a store of value that causes the price to spike and annual production to double. For any consumable commodity, this doubling of output will dwarf any existing stockpiles, bringing the price crashing down and hurting the holders. For gold, a price spike that causes a doubling of annual production will be insignificant, increasing stockpiles by 3% rather than 1.5%. If the new increased pace of production is maintained, the stockpiles grow faster, making new increases less significant. It remains practically impossible for gold miners to mine quantities of gold large enough to depress the price significantly. Only silver comes close to gold in this regard, with an annual supply growth rate historically around 5 to 10 percent, rising to around 20 percent in the modern day. This is higher than that of gold for two reasons. First, silver does corrode and can be consumed in industrial processes, which means the existing stockpiles are not as large relative to annual production as gold stockpiles are relative to its annual production. Second, silver is less rare than gold in the crust of the earth and easier to refine. Because of having the second highest stock-to-flow ratio and its lower value per unit of weight than gold, silver served for millennia as the main money used for smaller transactions, complementing gold whose high value meant dividing it into smaller units, which was not very practical. The adoption of the international gold standard allowed for payments in paper backed by gold at any scale, as will be discussed in more detail later in this chapter, which obviated silver's monetary role. With silver no longer required for smaller transactions, it soon lost its monetary role and became an industrial metal losing value compared to gold. Silver may maintain its sporting connotation for second place, but as 19th century technology made payments possible without having to move the monetary unit itself, 
second place in monetary competition was equivalent to losing out. This explains why the silver bubble has popped before and will pop again if it ever inflates. As soon as significant monetary investment flows into silver, it is not as difficult for producers to increase the supply significantly and bring the price crashing down, taking the saver's wealth in the process. The best-known example of the easy money trap comes from silver itself of all commodities. Back in the late 1970s, the very affluent Hunt brothers decided to bring about the remonetization of silver and started buying enormous quantities of silver, driving the price up. Their rationale was that as the price rose, more people would want to buy, which would keep the price rising, which in turn would lead to people wanting to be paid in silver. Yet, no matter how much the Hunt brothers bought, their wealth was no match for the ability of miners and holders of silver to keep selling silver onto the market. The price of silver eventually crashed, and the Hunt brothers lost over $1 billion, probably the highest price ever paid, for learning the importance of the stock-to-flow ratio, and why not all that glitters is gold. It is this consistently low rate of supply of gold that is the fundamental reason it has maintained its monetary role throughout human history, a role it continues to hold today as central banks continue to hold significant supplies of gold to protect their paper currencies. Official central bank reserves are at around 33,000 tons, or a sixth of total above-ground gold. The high stock-to-flow ratio of gold makes it the commodity with the lowest price elasticity of supply, which is defined as the percentage increase in quantity supplied over the percentage increase in price. Given that the existing supply of gold held by people everywhere is the product of thousands of years of production, an X percent increase in price may cause an increase in new mining production, but that increase will be trivial compared to existing stockpiles. For instance, the year 2006 witnessed a 36% rise in the spot price of gold. For any other commodity, this would be expected to increase mining output significantly, to flood markets and bring the price down. Instead, annual production in 2006 was 2,370 tons, 100 tons less than in 2005 and it would drop a further 10 tons in 2007. Whereas the new supply was 1.67% of existing stockpiles in 2005, it was 1.58% of existing stockpiles in 2006, and 1.54% of existing stockpiles in 2007. Even a 35% rise in price can lead to no appreciable increase in the supply of new gold onto the market. According to the U.S. Geological Survey, the single biggest annual increase in production was around 15% in the year 1923, which translated to an increase in stockpiles around only 1.5%. Even if production were to double, the likely increase in stockpiles would only be around 3-4%. to The highest annual increase in global stockpiles happened in 1940, when stockpiles rose by around 2.6%. 
Not once has the annual stockpile growth exceeded that number, and not once since 1942 has it exceeded 2%. As the production of metals began to proliferate, ancient civilizations in China, India, and Egypt began to use copper and later silver as money, as these two were relatively hard to manufacture at the time and allowed for good saleability across time and space. Gold was highly prized in these civilizations, but its rarity meant its saleability for transactions was limited. It was in Greece, the birthplace of modern civilization, where gold was first minted into regular coins for trade, under King Croesus. This invigorated global trade, as gold's global appeal saw the coin spread far and wide. Since then, the turns of human history have been closely intertwined with the soundness of money. Human civilization flourished in times and places where sound money was widely adopted, while unsound money all too frequently coincided with civilizational decline and societal collapse. Roman Golden Age and Decline the denarius was the silver coin that traded at the time of the Roman Republic, containing 3.9 grams of silver. While gold became the most valuable money in the civilized areas of the world at the time, and gold coins were becoming more widespread. Julius Caesar, the last dictator of the Roman Republic, created the aureus coin, which contained around 8 grams of gold and was widely accepted across Europe and the Mediterranean increasing the scope of trade and specialization in the old world. Economic stability reigned for 75 years, even through the political upheaval of his assassination, which saw the Republic transformed into an empire under his chosen successor Augustus. This continued until the reign of the infamous Emperor Nero, who was the first to engage in the Roman habit of coin-clipping wherein the emperor would collect the coins of the population and mint them into newer coins with less gold or silver content. For as long as Rome could conquer new lands with significant wealth, its soldiers and emperors could enjoy spending their loot, and emperors even decided to buy themselves popularity by mandating artificially low prices of grains and other staples, sometimes even granting them for free. Instead of working for a living in the countryside, many peasants would leave their farms to move to Rome, where they could live better lives for free. With time, the old world no longer had prosperous lands to be conquered. The ever-increasing lavish lifestyle and growing military required some new source of financing, and the number of unproductive citizens living off the emperor's largesse and price controls increased. Nero who ruled from 54 to 68 AD, had found the formula to solve this, which was highly similar to Keynes' solution to Britain's and the U.S.'s problems after World War I. Devaluing the currency would at once reduce the real wages of workers, reduce the burden of the government in subsidizing staples, and provide increased money for financing other government expenditure. The Aureus coin was reduced from 8 to 7.2 grams, while the Denarius's silver content was reduced from 3.9 to 3.41 grams. This provided some temporary relief. 
but had set in motion the highly destructive self-reinforcing cycle of popular anger, price controls, coin debasement, and price rises, following one another with the predictable regularity of the four seasons. Under the reign of Caracalla, 211-217 AD, the gold content was further reduced to 6.5 grams, and under Diocletian, 284-305 AD, it was further reduced to 5.5 grams, before he introduced a replacement coin called the Solidus with only 4.5 grams of gold. On Diocletian's watch, the denarius only had traces of silver to cover its bronze core, and the silver would disappear quite quickly with wear and tear, ending the denarius as a silver coin. As inflationism intensified in the 3rd and 4th centuries, with it came the misguided attempts of the emperors to hide their inflation by placing price controls on basic goods. As market forces sought to adjust prices upward in response to the debasement of the currency, price ceilings prevented these price adjustments, making it unprofitable for producers to engage in production. Economic production would come to a standstill until a new edict allowed for the liberalization of prices upward. With this fall in the value of its money, the long process of terminal decline of the empire resulted in a cycle that might appear familiar to modern readers. Coin clipping reduced the Arius's real value, increasing the money supply, allowing the emperor to continue imprudent overspending, but eventually resulting in inflation and economic crises, which the misguided emperors would attempt to ameliorate via further coin clipping. Ferdinand Lipp summarizes this process with a lesson to modern readers. It should be of interest to modern Keynesian economists, as well as to the present generation of investors, that although the emperors of Rome frantically tried to manage their economies, they only succeeded in making matters worse. Price and wage controls and legal tender laws were passed, but it was like trying to hold back the tides. Rioting, corruption, lawlessness, and a mindless mania for speculation and gambling engulfed the empire like a plague. With money so unreliable and debased, speculation in commodities became far more attractive than producing them. The long-term consequences for the Roman Empire were devastating. Although Rome up until the 2nd century AD may not be characterized as a full-fledged free-market capitalist economy, because it still had plenty of government restraints on economic activity, with the Arius, it nonetheless established what was then the largest market in human history with the largest and most productive division of labor the world had ever known. Citizens of Rome and the major cities obtained their basic necessities by trade with the far-flung corners of the empire, and this helps explain the growth and prosperity. And the devastating collapse the empire suffered when this division of labor fell apart. As taxes increased and inflation made price controls unworkable, the urbanites of the cities started fleeing to empty plots of land, where they could at least have a chance of living in self-sufficiency where their lack of income spared them having to pay taxes. The intricate civilizational edifice of the Roman Empire 
and the large division of labor across Europe and the Mediterranean began to crumble, and its descendants became self-sufficient peasants, scattered in isolation, and would soon turn into serfs living under feudal lords. Byzantium and the Besant The Emperor Diocletian has forever had his name associated with fiscal and monetary chicanery, and the empire reached a nadir under his rule. A year after he abdicated, however, Constantine the Great took over the reins of the empire and reversed its fortunes by adopting economically responsible policies and reforms. Constantine, who was the first Christian emperor, committed to maintaining the solidus at 4.5 grams of gold without clipping or debasement and started minting it in large quantities in 312 AD. He moved east and established Constantinople at the meeting point of Asia and Europe, birthing the Eastern Roman Empire, which took the solidus as its coin. While Rome continued its economic, social, and cultural deterioration, finally collapsing in 476 AD, Byzantium survived for 1,123 years, while the solidus became the longest-serving sound currency in human history. The legacy of Constantine in maintaining the integrity of the solidus made it the world's most recognizable and widely accepted currency, and it came to be known as the Besant. While Rome burned under bankrupt emperors who could no longer afford to pay their soldiers as their currencies collapsed, Constantinople thrived and prospered for many more centuries with fiscal and monetary responsibility. While the Vandals and the Visigoths ran rampage in Rome, Constantinople remained prosperous and free from invasion for centuries. As with Rome, the fall of Constantinople happened only after its rulers had started devaluing the currency, a process that historians believe began in the reign of Constantine IX Monomachos, 1042-1055. Along with monetary decline came the fiscal, military, cultural, and spiritual decline of the empire, as it trudged on with increasing crises until it was overtaken by the Ottomans in 1453. Even after it was debased and its empire fell, the Besant lived on by inspiring another form of sound money that continues to circulate widely to this day, in spite of not being the official currency of any nation anymore, and that is the Islamic dinar. As Islam rose during the Golden Age of Byzantium, the Besant and coins similar to it in weight and size were circulating in the regions to which Islam had spread. The Umayyad Caliph Abdul Malik ibn Marwan defined the weight and value of the Islamic dinar and imprinted it with the Islamic Shahada Creed in 697 AD. The Umayyad dynasty fell, and after it several other Islamic states and yet the dinar continues to be held and to circulate widely in Islamic regions in the original weight and size specifications of the Besant, and is used in dowries, gifts, and various religious and traditional customs to this day. Unlike the Romans and the Byzantines, Arab and Muslim civilizations' collapse was not linked to the collapse of their money, as they maintained the integrity of their currencies for centuries. The Solidus 
first minted by Diocletian in 301 AD, has changed its name to the bezant and the Islamic dinar, but it continues to circulate today. Seventeen centuries of people the world over have used this coin for transactions, emphasizing the saleability of gold across time. The Renaissance After the economic and military collapse of the Roman Empire, feudalism emerged as the prime mode of organizing society. The destruction of sound money was pivotal in turning the former citizens of the Roman Empire into serfs under the mercy of their local feudal lords. Gold was concentrated in the hands of the feudal lords, and the main forms of money available for the peasantry of Europe at the time were copper and bronze coins, whose supply was easy to inflate as industrial production of these metals continued to become easier with the advance of metallurgy making them terrible stores of value, as well as silver coins that were usually debased, cheated, and non-standardized across the continent, giving them poor saleability across space and limiting the scope of trade across the continent. Taxation and inflation had destroyed the wealth and savings of the people of Europe. New generations of Europeans came to the world with no accumulated wealth passed on from their elders, and the absence of a widely accepted sound monetary standard severely restricted the scope for trade, closing societies off from one another and enhancing parochialism as once prosperous and civilized trading societies fell into the dark ages of serfdom, diseases, closed-mindedness, and religious persecution. While it is widely recognized that the rise of the city-states dragged Europe out of the Dark Ages and into the Renaissance, the role of sound money in this rise is less recognized. It was in the city-states that humans could live with the freedom to work, produce, trade, and flourish, and that was, to a large extent, the result of these city-states adopting a sound monetary standard. It all began in Florence in 1252 when the city minted the florin, the first major European sound coinage since Julius Caesar's Arius. Florence's rise made it the commercial center of Europe, with its florin becoming the prime European medium of exchange, allowing its banks to flourish across the entire continent. Venice was the first to follow Florence's example, with its minting of the ducat, of the same specifications as the florin, in 1270 and by the end of the 14th century, more than 150 European cities and states had minted coins of the same specifications as the florin, allowing their citizens the dignity and freedom to accumulate wealth and trade with the sound money that was highly saleable across time and space and divided into small coins, allowing for easy divisibility. With the economic liberation of the European peasantry, came the political, scientific, intellectual, and cultural flourishing of the Italian city-states, which later spread across the European continent. Whether in Rome, Constantinople, Florence, or Venice, history shows that a sound monetary standard is a necessary prerequisite for human flourishing, without which society stands on the precipice of barbarism and destruction. Although the period following the introduction of the florin witnessed an improvement in the soundness of money, with more and more Europeans able to adopt gold and silver for saving and trade, 
and the extent of markets expanding across Europe and the world, the situation was far from perfect. There were still many periods during which various sovereigns would debase their people's currency to finance war or lavish expenditure. Given that they were used physically, silver and gold complemented each other. Gold's high stock-to-flow ratio meant it was ideal as a long-term store of value and a means of large payments. But silver's lower value per unit of weight made it easily divisible into quantities suitable for smaller transactions and for being held for shorter durations. While this arrangement had benefits, it had one major drawback. The fluctuating rate of exchange between gold and silver created trade and calculation problems. Attempts to fix the price of the two currencies relative to one another were continuously self-defeating, but gold's monetary edge was to win out. As sovereigns set an exchange rate between the two commodities, they would change holders' incentives to hold or spend them. This inconvenient bimetallism continued for centuries across Europe and the world, but as with the move from salt, cattle, and seashells to metals, the inexorable advance of technology was to provide a solution to it. Two particular technological advancements would move Europe and the world away from physical coins and in turn help bring about the demise of silver's monetary role. The telegraph, first deployed commercially in 1837, and the growing network of trains, allowing transportation across Europe. With these two innovations, it became increasingly feasible for banks to communicate with each other, sending payments efficiently across space when needed, and debiting accounts instead of having to send physical payments. This led to the increased use of bills, checks, and paper receipts as monetary media, instead of physical gold and silver coins. More nations began to switch to a monetary standard of paper fully backed by, and instantly redeemable into, precious metals held in vaults. Some nations would choose gold, and others would choose silver, in a fateful decision that was to have enormous consequences. Britain was the first to adopt a modern gold standard in 1717, under the direction of physicist Isaac Newton, who was the warden of the Royal Mint. And the gold standard would play a great role in it advancing its trade across its empire worldwide. Britain would remain under a gold standard until 1914, although it would suspend it during the Napoleonic Wars from 1797 to 1821. The economic supremacy of Britain was intricately linked to its being on a superior monetary standard and other European countries began to follow it. The end of the Napoleonic Wars heralded the beginning of the Golden Age of Europe, as one by one, the major European nations began adopting the gold standard. The more nations officially adopted the gold standard, the more marketable gold became, and the larger the incentive became for other nations to join. Further, Instead of individuals having to carry gold and silver coins for large and small transactions respectively, they could now store their wealth in gold in banks while using paper receipts, bills, and checks to make payments of any size. The holders of paper receipts could just use them to make payments themselves. Bills were discounted by banks and used for clearance, and checks could be cashed from the banks that issued them. This solved the problem of gold saleability across scales 
making gold the best monetary medium. For as long as the banks hoarding people's gold would not increase the supply of papers they issued as receipts. With these media being backed by physical gold in the vaults, and allowing payment in whichever quantity or size, there was no longer a real need for silver's role in small payments. The death knell for silver's monetary role was the end of the Franco-Prussian War, when Germany extracted an indemnity of 200 million pounds in gold from France and used it to switch to a gold standard. With Germany now joining Britain, France, Holland, Switzerland, Belgium, and others on a gold standard, the monetary pendulum had swung decisively in favor of gold, leading to individuals and nations worldwide who used silver to witness a progressive loss of their purchasing power and a stronger incentive to shift to gold. India finally switched from silver to gold in 1898, while China and Hong Kong were the last economies in the world to abandon the silver standard in 1935. For as long as gold and silver were used for payment directly, they both had a monetary role to play, and their price relative to one another remained largely constant across time, at a ratio between 12 and 15 ounces of silver per ounce of gold, in the same range as their relative scarcity in the crust of the earth and the relative difficulty and cost of extracting them. But as paper and financial instruments backed by these metals became more and more popular, there was no more justification for silver's monetary role, and individuals and nations shifted to holding gold, leading to a significant collapse in the price of silver from which it would not recover. The average ratio between the two over the 20th century was 47 to 1, and in 2017 it stood at 75 to 1. While gold still has a monetary role to play, as evidenced by central banks hoarding of it, Silver has arguably lost its monetary role. The demonetization of silver had a significantly negative effect on the nations that were using it as a monetary standard at the time. India witnessed a continuous devaluation of its rupee compared to gold-based European countries, which led the British colonial government to increase taxes to finance its operation, leading to growing unrest and resentment of British colonialism. By the time India shifted the backing of its rupee to the gold-backed pound sterling in 1898, the silver backing its rupee had lost 56% of its value in the 27 years since the end of the Franco-Prussian War. For China, which stayed on the silver standard until 1935, its silver, in various names and forms, lost 78% of its value over the period. It is the author's opinion that the history of China and India, and their failure to catch up to the West during the 20th century, is inextricably linked to this massive destruction of wealth and capital brought about by the demonetization of the monetary metal these countries utilized. The demonetization of silver, in effect, left the Chinese and Indians in a situation similar to West Africans, holding agri-beads as Europeans arrived. Domestic hard money was easy money for foreigners, and was being driven out by foreign hard money, which allowed foreigners to control and own increasing quantities of the capital and resources of China and India during the period. This is a historical lesson of immense significance, and should be kept in mind by anyone who thinks his refusal of Bitcoin means he doesn't have to deal with it, 
History shows it is not possible to insulate yourself from the consequences of others holding money that is harder than yours. With gold in the hands of increasingly centralized banks, it gained saleability across time, scales, and location, but lost its property as cash money, making payments in it subject to the agreement of the financial and political authorities issuing receipts, clearing checks, and hoarding the gold. Tragically, the only way gold was able to solve the problem of saleability across scale, space, and time was by being centralized, and thus falling prey to the major problem of sound money emphasized by the economists of the twentieth century. Individual sovereignty over money and its resistance to government-centralized control. We can thus understand why nineteenth-century sound money economists like Menger focused their understanding of money's soundness on its saleability as a market good, whereas twentieth-century sound money economists like Mises, Hayek, Rothbard, and Salerno focused their analysis of money's soundness on its resistance to control by a sovereign. Because the Achilles' heel of twentieth-century money was its centralization in the hands of the government, we will see later how the money invented in the twenty-first century, Bitcoin, was designed primarily to avoid centralized control. La Belle Époque The end of the Franco-Prussian War in 1871, and the consequent shift of all major European powers onto the same monetary standard, namely gold, led to a period of prosperity and flourishing that continues to appear more amazing with time and in retrospect. A case can be made for the 19th century, in particular the second half of it, being the greatest period for human flourishing, innovation, and achievement that the world had ever witnessed, and the monetary role of gold was pivotal to it. With silver and other media of exchange increasingly demonetized, the majority of the planet used the same golden monetary standard, allowing the improvements in telecommunications and transportation to foster global capital accumulation and trade like never before. Different currencies were simply different weights of physical gold, and the exchange rate between one nation's currency and the other was the simple conversion between different weight units, as straightforward as converting inches to centimeters. The British pound was defined as 7.3 grams of gold, while the French franc was 0.29 grams of gold, and the Deutsche Mark 0.36 grams, meaning the exchange rate between them was necessarily fixed at 26.28 French francs and 24.02 Deutsche Mark per pound. In the same way metric and imperial units are just a way to measure the underlying length, National currencies were just a way to measure economic value as represented in the universal store of value, gold. Some countries' gold coins were fairly saleable in other countries, as they were just gold. Each country's money supply was not a metric to be determined by central planning committees stocked with Ph.D. holders, but the natural working of the market system. People held as much money as they pleased, and spent as much as they desired on local or foreign production, and the actual money supply was not even easily measurable. The soundness of money was reflected in free trade across the world. But perhaps more importantly, 
was increasing savings rates across most advanced societies that were on the gold standard, allowing for capital accumulation to finance industrialization, urbanization, and the technological improvements that have shaped our modern life. By 1900, around 50 nations were officially on the gold standard, including all industrialized nations, while the nations that were not on an official gold standard still had gold coins being used as the main medium of exchange. Some of the most important technological, medical, economic, and artistic human achievements were invented during the era of the gold standard, which partly explains why it was known as La Belle Époque, or the Beautiful Era, across Europe. Britain witnessed the peak years of Pax Britannica, where the British Empire expanded worldwide and was not engaged in large military conflicts. In 1899, when American writer Nellie Bly set out on her record-breaking journey around the world in 72 days, she carried British gold coins and Bank of England notes with her. It was possible to circumnavigate the globe and use one form of money everywhere Nellie went. In the United States, this era was called the Gilded Age, where economic growth boomed after the restoration of the gold standard in 1879 in the wake of the American Civil War. It was only interrupted by one episode of monetary insanity, which was effectively the last dying pang of silver as money, discussed in Chapter 6, when the Treasury tried to remonetize silver by mandating it as money. This caused a large increase in the money supply and a bank run by those seeking to sell treasury notes and silver to gold. The result was the recession of 1893, after which U.S. economic growth resumed. With the majority of the world on one sound monetary unit, there was never a period that witnessed as much capital accumulation, global trade, restraint on government, and transformation of living standards worldwide. Not only were the economies of the West far freer back then, the societies themselves were far freer. Governments had very few bureaucracies focused on micromanaging the lives of citizens. As Mises described it, the gold standard was the world standard of the age of capitalism, increasing welfare, liberty and democracy, both political and economic. In the eyes of the free traders, its main eminence was precisely the fact that it was an international standard as required by international trade and the transactions of the international money and capital markets. It was the medium of exchange by means of which Western industrialism and Western capital had borne Western civilization to the remotest parts of the Earth's surface, everywhere destroying the fetters of old-aged prejudices and superstitions sowing the seeds of new life and new well-being, freeing minds and souls, and creating riches unheard of before. It accompanied the triumphal unprecedented progress of Western liberalism, ready to unite all nations into a community of free nations peacefully cooperating with one another. It is easy to understand why people viewed the gold standard as the symbol of this greatest and most beneficial of all historical changes. This world came crashing down in the catastrophic year 1914, which was not only the year of the outbreak of World War I, but the year that the world's major economies went off of the gold standard and replaced it with unsound government money. 
Only Switzerland and Sweden, who remained neutral during World War I, were to remain on the gold standard into the 1930s. The era of government-controlled money was to commence globally after that, with unmitigated disastrous consequences. While the gold standard of the 19th century was arguably the closest thing that the world had ever seen to an ideal, sound money, it nonetheless had its flaws. First, governments and banks were always creating media of exchange beyond the quantity of gold in their reserves. Second, many countries used not just gold in their reserves, but also currencies of other countries. Britain, as the global superpower at that time, had benefited from having its money used as a reserve currency all around the world, resulting in its reserves of gold being a tiny fraction of its outstanding money supply. With growing international trade relying on settlement of large quantities of money across the world, the Bank of England's banknotes became, in the minds of many at the time, as good as gold. While gold was very hard money, the instruments used for settlements of payments between central banks, although nominally redeemable in gold, ended up in practice being easier to produce than gold. These two flaws meant that the gold standard was always vulnerable to a run on gold in any country where circumstances might lead a large enough percentage of the population to demand redemption of their paper money in gold. The fatal flaw of the gold standard at the heart of these two problems was that settlement in physical gold is cumbersome, expensive, and insecure, which meant it had to rely on centralizing physical gold reserves in a few locations, banks and central banks, leaving them vulnerable to being taken over by governments. As the number of payments and settlements conducted in physical gold became an infinitely smaller fraction of all payments, the banks and central banks holding the gold could create money unbacked by physical gold and use it for settlement. The network of settlement became valuable enough that its owner's credit was effectively monetized. As the ability to run a bank started to imply money creation, governments naturally gravitated to taking over the banking sector through central banking. The temptation was always too strong, and the virtually infinite financial wealth this secured could not only silence dissent, but also finance propagandists to promote such ideas. Gold offered no mechanism for restraining the sovereigns, and had to rely on trust in them not abusing the gold standard, and the population remaining eternally vigilant against them doing so. This might have been feasible when the population was highly educated and knowledgeable about the dangers of unsound money, but with every passing generation displaying the intellectual complacence that tends to accompany wealth, the siren song of con artists and court jester economists would prove increasingly irresistible for more of the population, leaving only a minority of knowledgeable economists and historians fighting an uphill battle to convince people that wealth can't be generated by tampering with the money supply, that allowing a sovereign the control of the money can only lead to them increasing their control of everyone's life, and that civilized human living itself rests on the integrity of money providing a solid foundation for trade and capital accumulation. Gold being centralized made it vulnerable to having its monetary role usurped by its enemies, 
and gold simply had too many enemies, as Mises himself well understood. The nationalists are fighting the gold standard because they want to sever their countries from the world market and to establish national autarky as far as possible. Interventionist governments and pressure groups are fighting the gold standard because they consider it the most serious obstacle to their endeavors to manipulate prices and wage rates. But the most fanatical attacks against gold are made by those intent upon credit expansion. With them, credit expansion is the panacea for all economic ills. The gold standard removes the determination of cash-induced changes in purchasing power from the political arena. Its general acceptance requires the acknowledgement of the truth that one cannot make all people richer by printing money. The abhorrence of the gold standard is inspired by the superstition that omnipotent governments can create wealth out of little scraps of paper. The governments were eager to destroy it because they were committed to the fallacies that credit expansion is an appropriate means of lowering the rate of interest and of improving the balance of trade. People fight the gold standard because they want to substitute national autarky for free trade war for peace, totalitarian government omnipotence for liberty. The twentieth century began with governments bringing their citizens' gold under their control through the invention of the modern central bank on the gold standard. As World War I started, the centralization of these reserves allowed these governments to expand the money supply beyond their gold reserves, reducing the value of their currency yet central banks continued to confiscate and accumulate more gold until the 1960s, where the move toward a U.S. dollar global standard began to shape up. Although gold was supposedly demonetized fully in 1971, central banks continued to hold significant gold reserves and only disposed of them slowly before returning to buying gold in the last decade. Even as central banks repeatedly declared the end of gold's monetary role, their actions in maintaining their gold reserves ring truer. From a monetary competition perspective, keeping gold reserves is a perfectly rational decision. Keeping reserves in foreign governments' easy money only will cause the value of the country's currency to devalue along with the reserve currencies, while the seniorage accrues to the issuer of the reserve currency not the nation's central bank. Further, should central banks sell all their gold holdings, estimated at around 20% of global gold stockpiles, the most likely impact is that gold, being highly prized for its industrial and aesthetic uses, would be bought up very quickly, with little depreciation of its price, and the central banks would be left without any gold reserves. The monetary competition between easy government money and hard gold will likely result in one winner in the long run. Even in a world of government money, governments have not been able to decree gold's monetary role away, as their actions speak louder than their words.